Hey, this is John Matalavich from the Human Advancement Podcast, powered by Ruthless Performance. Today, I'm here with Assistant Strength and Conditioning Coach for Ruthless Performance and current Ruthless Performance intern, Keith Lowry, as part of Keith's internship program for the Exercise Science Department at Bloomsburg University. We have him in coaching pretty frequently. In addition to that, uh, I'm going to make a regular segment for the Human Advancement Podcast where Keith just kind of gets to ask me some questions that he has. You know, be it about strength and conditioning or or the business side of gym ownership, anything like that. So this is going to be a wide ranging series of questions on on the part of Keith directed towards me. Now, with that, anything this this will be all over the place. So sometimes it'll be more gym oriented or, or whatever the case might be. But I going into this conversation, I don't know what the questions are going to be. So as uh, I'm I'm hearing them just as as you are as you're listening to this. So we're just kind of improvising as we go along. Yeah. So a lot of these questions I just I I come up with with more experience I get coaching with with John and on on my own. So starting off, I wanted to uh, start with training in general. So my my background is powerlifting, a little bit of bodybuilding. Um, stuff like that. So we're going to start off with that. So um, I wanted to ask you, John, how were you introduced to strength training? For me, I started strength training as a means of improving my swimming performance. So when I started, um, and this, if anyone's listened to me for any length of time or anyone's heard me speak or anyone, especially in the swimming world has heard me, um, they've heard this story before, but I started strength training between my sophomore and junior year um, of high school. Um, just as a means of getting better at swimming. Specifically, I was a sprinter. Um, more specifically, I was a 50, or I didn't even have the endurance really to do 100. Um, and I guess you could also say I didn't even necessarily have the strength to do 100 either because, um, you know, in order to do a sprint of that length, you really do need to be able to utilize your walls and your and your start off the block, which, which is all derived from strength. People think it's a little bit more... Um, conditioning oriented than it needs to be um that's just because they come from a swimming background um i know you're starting to get an introduction into swimming now we're just recording some of these meets um so you're seeing a little bit of it but uh, i i think a great the the number that sticks in my head with this is when i was a sophomore at my, the district meet my time in the 50 freestyle was a 24 33 so it was oh it was okay it was a, a decent time um, I know right now that would probably put me in the top one or two heats at the district meet where I'd still be swimming today. So this is from a little over a decade ago, but, um, or actually a decade ago, I did a 24:33, and then the following year I came back after strength training. So that's when I started um, hitting it hard and I went 22:33. Yeah. So it was a two second drop and a two lap event which is pretty huge, especially when you're starting with a 24:33, which already isn't a terrible time to begin with. So it's not as though it's not as though it's someone that's never swam before uh, dropping two seconds. It's someone that has, you know, a little bit of skill and a little bit of skin in the game already. I came all the way up through age group. So I saw the value in it right off the bat and just kind of stuck with it. I still have, I have every workout I've ever done recorded. Um, some of the first ones are, are pretty funny, just looking back on them, just seeing how I have some of the stuff listed, um, I, what are the, some of the equipment I was using. At, at the time, I had a, a, one of those standard barbells, which is like a four or five foot long barbell with the, 
the one inch holes and it had the cement plates on it. And the cement plates had uh, metal clips on the outside and the metal clips were actually rusted on. So the barbell was perpetually set at 80 pounds. So anytime I wanted to do anything with the barbell at that point in my life, I was using only 80 pounds. And then when I saw the uh, 45 pound plates for the Olympic bar at first, I thought they were like a joke. Like it was almost comical to think of lifting those things. But then uh, even going through, going through um, my college experience, when I was a freshman in college, I still swam. And even at that point, I was utilizing strength and conditioning and knew I had wanted to get into strength training more uh, adamantly, um, even at, as a career. So at that point, I was looking at, I was in an exercise science program, and I was doing similar stuff um, that I was always doing, which kind of flew in the face of some of the things that the swim coaches would have liked to have seen at the time. Um, basically, even up to that point, I was still a proponent of German volume training. And I mean, it, it worked. I mean, I used it. I used that uh, for a solid couple years of training. What kind of what kind of ref teams did you use for the German volume training? Like, I, ha I have some experience myself in that. I mean, yeah. I came up as a wrestler. So in, in the wrestling world, it's more and more and more like you just got to drive yourself into the ground with with work and that's how you get better so like I, I i know from personal experience it's like okay if i hit as much volume as possible it means i'm going to get stronger so what kind of rep schemes were you hitting with that it was always a 10 by 10 at first uh regardless of the day so that was usually uh bench press one day was the main probably squat deadlift and something else probably overhead press but uh, so like the big the big four yeah basically. basically some iterations thereof mm -hmm. um, and then I would follow up with supplemental work would either be five by tens or five by twenties so I was doing a ten by ten off the jump and then supplementing that with a uh, um, five by ten or five by twenty on something like curls or whatever the case is I don't know inclined bench i still when i'm going through volume phases i still heavily use that basic model uh for adding volume so i do two different things for adding volume i'll do um so i still like the 10 by 10 format and i'll either do one of two things kind of depending uh one of the things i like to do especially for my own training is um a 10 by 10 every minute on the minute um with something like front squats you're not really adding much weight to that ever so that's uh, pretty low weights, um, even by the end of a cycle, of, uh, like a four-week cycle, I'm on probably no more than 65 or 85 pounds if I do something like that. Or I'll do a 10 by 10, um, super satted with two different exercises. So the first, say I'm doing a 10 by 10 of front squats, just like I was saying in the other example. Uh, this time I'll do 10 by 10 on front squats, but the first five sets will be superset with something like uh, a Nordic hamstring curl. And then the second five sets will be superset with something like a toes to bar or reverse crunch, something. Um, ab work is done almost every single day, just in my own personal training, same with back training. So those two things are hit pretty hard on a regular basis, regardless of what the goal is. But the 10 by 10 has never been something I've gotten too far away from. I think, I think, it's a good base, a good base for any kind of 
lifter starting out, use that kind of volume training just to get your work capacity up. And plus the uh, learning learning the barbell movements as right. well. Um, being able being able to perfect not really perfect but just get the basic movements down before moving into higher like strength training can really benefit somebody in uh, preventing injury especially I mean on the squat I see it all the time where people just kind of start off with heavy weights on the squat and like throw it on their back but don't know how to brace properly or how to how to keep their feet um, you know like shoulder width apart because I know a lot of people will go super super close quad dominant and then their knees are like three or four inches over their toes so uh, yeah I think I think I always thought that was a good a good starting point so when you were doing your loading schemes with the German volume training, did you did you kind of pyramid up and then back down? So if you're doing like a ten by ten, would you pyramid up no, to a certain no, way? No, did no. you flat load it? Loading was loading was always as much as I could deal with. <laughs> so the first couple sets, uh, the first couple sets would always be too much, and then the last couple sets would be how whatever I could hang on to. But just to touch back on something that you had just mentioned, which was the idea of. Um, um, that being good for building a base of kind of fundamental understanding of, of barbell loading and, and just knowing how things should feel. I think that's the 10 by 10 is great for that, particularly when you compare it to what people are doing for loading if they're not doing that. If people aren't doing that 10 by 10, the alternative is what? Um, relatively just maxing out. Going they're just there. maxing out, if exactly. You, like, it, I, I see it a lot now. Um, especially now that the, the rec center is open at Bloomsburg University, um, you walk in there and you'll see you'll see a guy go on the bench and uh, load the bar up as heavy as they can go, do a rep or two, rack it, and then that's about it. And you know how those those yeah. reps look too. And, and that's that's exactly what that's why I think that thing I like to see is more of a West Side style dynamic work where people are doing like nine by three or something like that, where you get the best of both worlds. Where you have you have that high volume, but it's it's interspersed with periods of rest so people get uh more because the first rep is really the rep that looks the best so the more sets you have with fewer reps the more first reps you have and the first rep tends to be the one that's the most pristine so what kind of um rest period do you like for that for that kind of training would you would you consider would you consider like a minute or would you consider less than that like 45 seconds uh, I know a minute. I I have a few people on ten by tens currently, or have had them on ten by tens in the past few uh, few months. But under a minute is almost impossible. Like the every minute on the minute thing is really tough, especially for a, a novice or even an intermediate lifter to kind of deal with. Um, so I'll, I'll do. I tend as long as I can, and as long as it's not a super talkative athlete. I'll go out of my way to not necessarily prescribe a set rest scheme and just kind of let them come to recovery. The only time I will is is either if we're trying to build up some aerobic base or if the athlete's just a talker and we need to kind of keep them moving, uh, in which case I'll, I'll put some kind of rep uh, time rest period on the, on the program. But otherwise, I won't. Actually, that was a good point you brought up about um, just – building up some kind of like work capacity, like aerobic capacity with your, with your athletes. Now, like if you, if you've been working with an athlete for, for a while, say like a good six or six, seven months, would you throw something in like that, some kind of high volume in like that with a lower rest period, just to build up, just to build up the work capacity with a lo like a lower intensity? 
Um, Weight-wise? Yeah, not on primary lifts. I tend not to try to gas athletes on any of the primary lifts. Um, at the end of, like, as opposed to just throwing an athlete on a piece of stationary cardio equipment at the end of a workout, we'll, we could do a little bit of, we'll have a little bit of play or wiggle room with what we're doing for a conditioning, but it's usually not with traditional barbell work. Um, the only thing that I've ever really done, uh, as far as barbell work mixed in with, uh, any kind of conditioning work is Tabatas with a front squat. So 20 seconds on, 10 seconds rest of front squats. Although it's not necessarily true Tabata because um, I like the idea of active recovery in the 10 seconds on the Tabata. And you don't really get that with the front squat. You can't kind of front squat. You're only either front squatting or you're not. So it's usually 10 second actual rest as opposed to not. But outside of that, I don't do too, too much barbell work during conditioning. Um, it gets too sloppy. So, so form breakdown, is that your biggest worry? Yes, okay. yes. Um, how long do you usually wait before you start introducing actual barbell work when you start working with an athlete? Uh, usually... It or, or does that depend on the athlete? It, like it always depends. It, everything always depends on the athlete. But the rule of thumb is usually after the first cycle. Um, most programs... that The most similar programs that I'll give any two athletes are the first program they get from us. So in that case, in the case of the first program, that's kind of where we're, we're dealing with the majority of, of the primary issues. And we're almost using the first four week cycle as an assessment cycle. So we're building up some fundamental patterns. Um, they might see some barbell work, but more than likely, even if they're doing a front squat, any kind of squat, it's going to be loaded with, uh, either body weight or kettlebell in a goblet position, something like that. But um, I like to get people to a barbell as fast as possible. But um, if they're not ready, they're not ready. Yeah, I, I noticed that myself working with you. Um, whenever you bring a new athlete in here, you usually start them out with like a goblet squat, goblet squat or kettlebell deadlift, just to see just to see their movement patterns, be just to, if they're able to squat down parallel, see if they have their mobility. Mm-hmm. Like That's what I, I've noticed a lot too is, there's, it's a lot more than strength when it comes in, into training like this. Like, does the athlete have the mobility for it? Do they have the coordination? I think coordination is probably the most important thing that I've seen. It's like some athletes can come in here the same age group. Like, you know, um, I've worked with mostly what 14, 15 year olds so far. Yeah. Um, you could have some come in here that are more developed than others, especially at that age. And I've noticed boys more than girls have less coordination coming in so you have to ha- you have to be more patient with them is, is that like have you noticed that yeah i mean that's usually well the difference is even from a the, the perspective of puberty i mean that's why you could see such different uh such a, a disparity between athletes it, or right around that age level and and just from the perspective that most females go through puberty sooner you see them start to uh, develop as athletes a little bit faster, um, whereas boys could come on a little bit later. Uh, but yeah, each athlete's going to be very different in terms of, of what they're capable of, of doing. But one of the reasons I like that, going back to that, the goblet squat idea is even for an athlete that does have a prior experience with barbell work, by loading them with a kettlebell, they don't have that preconceived idea of what they've been squatting in the past. So if they're holding a 
what they perceive to be a heavy kettlebell in a goblet position, um, it's still going to be substantially lighter than anything that they would have been doing with a barbell and a front squat. Um, so they think they're loading heavy, but it is a lot lighter, which allows for way better technique development, which is what I'm concerned about nine times out of ten. Because the athlete will get more more out of that, correct? Right, right. Yeah, I mean that if if I could make an athlete good at anything, it would be that it would be the box squat. I mean that's probably the Louis Simmons and me coming out, but I think that that I mean it's inherently super corrective. Uh, really builds up the hamstrings. And that's not squatting to a box. That's actually box squatting. Through. Right, right. So if um, I've yet to do any kind of, of visual aids on this, but I would recommend people just googling uh, even just Louis Simmons or Westside Barbell uh, box squat setup and just kind of using what they're doing as as a base because I think it's brilliant as opposed to what you said, which is that bot, that squat to a box, which is a totally different game. I mean, this is a this is a backwards and forwards exercise as opposed to an up down exercise. Yeah, I'm I'm actually. Um figuring that out myself uh, good actually that was a good point to bring up with louis simmons um because i i'm looking at a lot of west side principles now how did you how did you uh find west side how did you start um you know researching into their ideas about lifting like including the box squat which i know louis is the one that really made that made that popular right um i i been reading I've been following fitness and strength and conditioning related material for a very long time um, actually I had my first so uh, prior to my first publication I was reading for a long time and I know I had my first article published in a major mainstream fitness magazine when I was 17 so you can imagine that I even by that point, I had some some shit kind of figured out in terms of where to just find resources online. And that was somehow something I came to relatively early in my training career. Um, I couldn't tell you why. I don't think it was um, Bigger, Stronger, Faster by Mark Bell. Oh, Mark Bell. That's a great movie. But it might have been. I'm not sure what got me there. That that squat suit over there that was handed that was given to me by Louis. Um, that because had, you you visited right. Westside, correct? Yep, yep. Um, so that's kind of why the conjugate system um, has has been an integral part of my my training experience. I mean, I have bands on a bar at least once a week, if not all days that I'm training, box squatting at least once a week, probably squatting a, a, a day additional to that. Um, so it's it's definitely been something good to grow off of, but I'm not sure what, what got me there in the first place. Now, the, uh, you brought up a good point about um, on, on using using the internet to find, uh, just for educational purposes. Like for me, I, YouTube, YouTube I started out on YouTube because you can watch, I mean, you can go on, you can go on YouTube and find old videos from like 2000 of like Louis Simmons or Chuck Vogelpulse squatting, you know, and like, especially at, at that age, at like 17, it's like, well, this is a lot, and you know, it's um, like, how do I do that? And that, that's sort of like where I started out. Now, um, if you have any recommendations for anyone, you know, start, start now, like trying to find more information on, on strength training or just lifting in general, where would you recommend them, recommend them to go? The, the one 
resource I used religiously for a long time was tnation.com. Um, see, the problem is if you go on Google and you just try to type in any of the general keywords um, that you would see in health and fitness, you kind of just get gobbled up by uh, super mainstream magazines that don't really provide you with any kind of content. They're just throwing ads at you. Um, but I think T Nation, my problem with them wasn't so much that they put out anything bad as much as it was that there was a point where they were putting out consistently one article a day. So I was I would just keep up with it. Um, and then eventually it just grew and grew and grew to the point where they were putting out a whole bunch, uh, just a series of articles every day. And at some point I just kind of gave up on the, on the whole endeavor. But regardless of if you read from them, they do a pretty good job at vetting their professionals. So they are a good resource, even in terms of finding people to follow, even if you don't follow them directly. Um, I want to put something up on the website. I've yet to do that, but, um, you know, that is, that is, that is something people could follow too. Uh, if you want to see what I'm reading on a, on a pretty consistent basis, almost on a weekly basis, I put out a, a featured fitness content, uh, series. And right now I'm at like the 93rd installment that'll be out tomorrow, which will be out before this recording on the 18th. Um, and that, that has just my favorite podcast or articles or what research periodicals, whatever, from the past week or so that I found. So that's a good place to go as well. Um, that definitely gets you past a lot of the 101 level stuff that you might find on, um, you know, men's health or whatever mainstream publications you might see. Yeah, because I've noticed that too. When you, when you do search up keywords like that, like bodybuilding, powerlifting, you get, I don't know if it's just this, how Google works, you get those, you get those top ones that are, you know, the top advertisements, you know, and I feel like if, if, especially if you don't know where to look, it's, it's pretty easy just to go on there and then find, find in like, it's a good starting point, I guess, but like, um, definitely not the, the best, I guess you can say like T nations. I, I use T nation a lot too. Elite FTS. I've been, I've been on Elite FTS's website. All, I mean, probably every day for the past, like three months on. I've written for them. I've written for them. Yeah. I remember, I remember you uh, telling me about that. What, what were the, so what were the articles about? I have two on Elite FTS. I think um, if they didn't remove them, I put them up probably a good couple of years ago now. Uh, one was on strength and conditioning for swimmers, and one was on um, eating healthy in college. Um, That's a big one. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. And nutrition's a shit subject to try to get into because of how... I feel like it's saturated. Health and diet professionals try to obfuscate nutrition to make it seem more difficult to deal with than it really should be. Mm. Hey. I kind of, I, I feel, I feel like it's saturated in a way because you, you go on any, and all, everyone's opinions are different too. It's not, it's not even that well, I've noticed. It's not even necessarily that their opinions are different. It's that, um, they rely on advertising and they can't tell you the same thing too many times in a row because of clicks start to go down. So there's, uh, there's like an implicit need to, um, have controversy from one post to the next and almost to create some some level of chaos just so that you're constantly clicking and constantly seeing more and more ads 
um, which is another reason I, I tend to shy away from any of the any of the primary things that you might find on uh, just by googling some of the more mainstream and more well-known fitness search terms um, because the people that have managed to figure out SEO or search engine optimization are also the people that have have managed to figure out what articles get clicks and it's not the most simple articles that get the clicks or the most straightforward. So what do you mean by that? I mean they have an incentive to try to confuse you to get you to click on different things because it isn't aligned with something else that they said previously. So you're saying like uh, they're trying to like keep you title, on like a title that more or less asks a question, you know? Yeah, well, or might... just like one article eggs are good, one article eggs are bad from the oh. same website mm -hmm. type shit. It's um, now I think the easiest thing with nutrition and people, I think this is the easiest way you could think about this, but people could still get caught up in this, I guess. But the, my general rule of thumb is: does something have? If you looked at something under a microscope, if it has, does it have cells? If it has cells, it's probably not bad. If it doesn't have cells, that's probably not food. Yeah, it's so, so highly processed. Right. And that that brings up a question I had for you too. So, um, do you ever hear the vertical diet, Stan Efferding? No. Stan Efferding. Uh, he's a he's uh, a bodybuilder slash powerlifter. He was so he IFBB pro, um, and he had the highest total ever by a, a bodybuilder like an IFBB pro at the time and he came up with the vertical diet which I, I think you kind of follow the same principles with that that's what I wanted to ask you about his his whole thing is eating foods that are easy, easily digestible and have a high like nutrition content too like like it's it's low pro like the foods aren't processed and like I said earlier like gut health is his most is one of his biggest um, his biggest things because he says well, why, why would you eat food if you can't digest it? If you can't digest it down, which I, I feel like you use that that principle too with yeah. like because you eat a lot of mushrooms, correct? Right, one hundred percent. And I'm they have I, I'm not too I'm not too up to date on or I I don't know too much about the nutritional facts about mushrooms, but I feel like they vary for from each mushroom. Yeah, they correct? they have they they have a, a a whole host of things that you're not getting from most of the things. Um, most notably, what people talk about with mushrooms is that they're they're loaded with uh, this this concept of this this profile of uh, chem chemical compounds called adaptogens, which are basically just uh, it's just a, a name of a category of nutrients that worked to bring about uh, homeostatic biological equilibrium. So it's basically just trying to restabilize you as an organism. That's that's one of the reasons like I like mushrooms. But yeah, that the the whole idea of gut health just goes back to um, like we were saying about the people trying to complicate nutrition. There's also an economic incentive to keep nutrition more complex because if Coca-Cola tells you that 200 calories are 200 calories, then having a Coca-Cola doesn't sound any worse than having 200 calories of anything else that's actually food. So there is there is um, an economic incentive even for the nutritional research to kind of point that way. So yeah, instead of breaking it down into like how much sugars and Coca-Cola is that what you're saying? Right. So and I'm saying yeah. So it's even in terms of that, even even for them to say, well, this has 30 grams of sugar in it, but so does 
three oranges, so just have the Coke. Like it's not it's not one and the same just because the even if the numbers would tell you otherwise, it's not the same. Yeah, because the sugars are different. Right. right. Yeah. And and one of the things that I, I've thought about for a long time with, with diet and with gut well, not even necessarily with gut health, one of the conclusions I've kind of drawn as of recent is moving from so when I was when I was an undergrad in exercise science, I had thought about um, when I was thinking about human performance, I thought about it in terms of musculoskeletal system, basically just muscles acting on bones um, and kind of using that to bring about some kind of um, change in performance. Um, so from like a very mechanical perspective on human performance. And then that kind of transitioned into um, more thinking about the central nervous system. So um, neuromuscular then, thinking how the brain acts on the muscles which act on the bones um, but now ultimately I've kind of come to a point where I'm thinking more less about the central nervous system and less about uh, the muscular system and more about um, the gut because of its role in kind of mediating everything downstream from that which is all the things that I've just talked about um, particularly my interest is in serotonin I think that it's so it's so understudied for as much SSRIs as there are on the market. We have very little grasp um, in terms of our understanding of serotonin, but that seems to be kind of the the master regulator in the body that is um, ultimately in control of testosterone and bone development, muscle development, hunger, uh, appetite, everything. And so how would you regulate that? Um, well, there's really two ways through which serotonin could be regulated. Um, one is through sun exposure, through vitamin D synthesis in the skin, and the other is through the gut. And those are really the only two ways. So if you're not doing either of those and you're not supplementing with vitamin D, um, you're just, you're, you're, you're out of luck. I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of random at that point. So. That's why you need to maintain pretty frequent sun exposure and at the very least focus on your diet. And if you're not doing either of those two things, you really need to be supplementing with vitamin D. That's, that's interesting because, I, I mean, you hear it all the time. Always take a vitamin D supplement, like, especially here in Pennsylvania. We, and at this time of the year, we're not getting enough vitamin D. I never knew exactly why we needed to supplement it, but um, now that you say that about serotonin, I didn't know vitamin D affected serotonin. Yeah, vitamin D is a precursor for serotonin. Okay. And one of the, yeah, it, it's it's really interesting. Because um, I always hear like, you, you know, you, you supplement vitamin D, you have, your energy levels are higher and you, you're in relatively a better mood mm -hmm. in general. And that, so that has to do with the ser your serotonin yeah. levels. And, and it's it's the pro one of the problems with, with kind of where we're at with health and fitness is, is how categorical we try to get with things. So um, ultimately vitamin D uh, usually ends up getting kind of paired with like calcium and bone health. So people just think about it in terms of, of old people. Um, but, uh, what vitamin D is doing for the body and, um, how it's working to create and regulate serotonin goes well beyond age related illness. That is the total performance hormone. So in a diet, so in someone's diet, how would you regulate serotonin? Is that through like fasting? Uh, that would help. That would help. But uh, it's it's weird because 
it, it's almost a situation where it can't be too high or too low um, because oh, so there's like a happy there's like a right a level where you need to be throughout the day right, and that's kind of one of the reasons why um, that's one of the reasons why I think serotonin is so poorly understood because usually we're very binary about things in terms of health science where we think something's either good or bad. Um, whereas with that, it's, it's actually more of a, of a mid-level or, or so on. So I'm thinking. And then there also comes the, there also comes the, the receptors into account. So where is the serotonin going in the body is another question. Um, and how do you train it to go to the right places? Um, I think that has something to do with dopamine. But we're get it's like it's almost getting down into the weeds. One of the things I, I I would I think is interesting about serotonin and where I'd kind of like to leave this before it turns into like a a pretty high level physiological dissection here is um, the best way you could get vitamin D and therefore synthesize serotonin is uh, through sunlight. One of the things that happens with sunlight that does not happen with dietary vitamin D or through um, supplemental vitamin D is you can never, under any circumstances, produce too much vitamin D through sun exposure. Because what happens is, ultimately, the, the series, the, the, the cascade of events in the body that produces uh, vitamin D ultimately creates an equilibrium where once you have too much, it starts breaking down into and forming melatonin. So if you get too much sunlight, you start getting tired. That's why like when you go out in the sun in the spring for the first couple of times, you get like sleepy or you get headaches. Um, that is because of, that's just because of the melatonin production from the from the overproduction of the vitamin D. So that's the, so that's the body's way of right. Just yeah, just regulating it. Right. Oh wow, I did not know that. That's that's interesting. Yeah, it explains a lot now. Yeah, most people. I mean, it's not something people are thinking about. Especially, it's not something most personal trainers or anything are thinking about. No. Um, especially because it's hard to think about it because the research isn't there. Yeah, very limited. And I can I can attest to that too. You know. Um, Vitamin D from I mean I I've only taken basic level nutrition classes the only the only topic I mean vitamin D has come up but it was only brought up with bone health right and you know always you know take that for especially especially women uh, take it to help with to prevent uh, osteoporosis and you know stuff in that that's area. because that's because they're used that's because those idiots provide it with the same level of significance as they provide any other nutrient. So they have to they have to just pair it with one thing, just like they have to pair everything else with one thing, because otherwise you can't put it on a test easily. Because there's too many things. Because you can't weight one nutrient greater than you can weight one other nutrient, because then it doesn't look right on a test, which is dumb. Which is the problem with nutrition classes. Yeah, I, I think it, it, we can go down that rabbit hole if we wanted about testing and how how classes are you know geared towards. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't know if we should. No, <laughs> classes are good to work. Classes are geared towards making you good at taking tests. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. And then yeah. making but, you good at teaching classes. Yeah, just it's like regurgitating information. That's about it. Right. But uh, I mean, you, you you do learn some things from it. But uh, like I said, we probably shouldn't go down that rabbit hole. Right. But uh, 
So how does your how does your diet change throughout the year? Because I know um, you're an avid hunter. Deer mm-hmm. season when deer season comes around, you know you're out in the woods every day, correct? Yeah, I yeah as much as I can. I mean, over the past rifle season, I was usually I'm not as much of a rifle hunter as I am an archery hunter. If I'm lucky, I'm usually tagged out by the time uh, rifle season rolls around. But um, yeah, the diet does change quite a bit. But was that was that the extent of the question? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, I do myself a lot more leeway when I'm in the woods in terms of what I'm eating. So my Snickers consumption goes through the roof um, in the months of no, October through December, um, as is my coffee consumption. Um, but with that, I'm actually recording a podcast next Wednesday. So this will be released on Monday. On Wednesday, I'm recording a podcast with Servicide on Nutrition for Hunters. Um, but one of the things that I actually... Uh, that does improve for me nutritionally during the hunting season is my uh, fasting goes up, uh, my, my fasting window extends. And one of the reasons I, I do that is because I'm more attentive uh, while I'm hunting when I'm on an empty stomach. And there's very good evolutionary mechanisms for why that would be the case. I mean, you're not, you're, your need to focus isn't nearly as high if you have a steady stream of food coming in. Well, the, yeah, the body has to worry about that food, digesting that food at right. the same time as you're out there hunting. And in my own research too, you notice when humans were hunter-gatherers, how many times did they eat a day? Not much. No. And the reason they're hunting is because they're hungry. Exactly. So you're better at hunting when you're hungry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so attentiveness goes up. Yeah. And then with that, I'll... Uh, and then... So when I do start eating, if I, if I have a full day out there or even if I'm doing a backcountry trip, I tend to load mornings with um, high fat, low carb. So I'll do um, mixed nuts, usually a good couple ounces. So my first probably 1,000 calories um, of the day are through mixed nuts, probably, you know, seven or eight ounces. I'm not, I'm not measuring it, but it's just thereabouts. Which which makes sense because you're walking um, approximately like what four or five miles a lot yeah yeah and, and it depends if I'm doing a hunt around here probably three miles to get to a stand or if I'm in the west a lot more than that yeah so I mean the, the fat content needs yeah. to be up for sure and I'm assuming too like your calories go up as well because the amount of the amount of um, the amount you're burning is going up as well because not only are you walking that distance you're out in especially in rifle season uh the way it's much colder out so your body's going to be burning i don't i have well it, on a daily basis maybe i i don't really go into too much of a deficit i usually stay on top of it in terms of caloric consumption but i think the rest of the year i'm training to such a degree or i'm still out hiking or whatever to the point where the caloric burden doesn't really go up or down. So yeah, it's not really too much of a difference. No, but okay. yeah. And then the nice thing about having the, the big uh, freezers is I have the ability to kind of store meat throughout. So I'll, although I would say I'm getting more venison during the hunting season, like uh, right, right around December, I'll probably hit venison like twice a day, breakfast and dinner. And then um, 
as I start closing in on the summer, that, that number tends to go down a little bit. To like, like twice a week or something? Two or three or four, four times three. a week, yeah. Wow, that's, that's good. Yeah. And people, people give me a lot of it too. I mean, people, uh, I think around here, people just kind of do it just for the, the tradition of, of hunting and more so than the meat procurement aspect of it. So um, a lot of people have pretty full freezers and don't tend to use much of it. Whereas, you know, people people almost think I'm stingy because I'm not giving out meat and they think that people just have a, uh, a whole bunch of meat on hand. But, uh, you know, when I'm eating it as much as I am, it, it goes quick. You're treating it more like actual beef. Right, right. And just using it on a pretty regular basis. That yeah. way. And I, I've noticed too, um, with my personal experience, cooking venison is totally different from like cooking beef. Yeah. Just from, just from, like, I feel like it cooks faster. I don't know. If, I don't know if that's just from just me or because of how much leaner it is, mm -hmm. but I can't tell you how many times I've cooked, you know, I get the tenderloins back and I throw them in the, I throw them in broil them. And then next thing you know, they're overdone. And then I'm sitting there just upset. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I would do a, I would do a sear and then I would get them get them good and crispy on all sides and then after that i would throw them in the oven at about 400. all uh using avocado oils has tend to work pretty well for me in terms of allowing me to use a higher heat on the stove and then pop it in the oven a little bit faster so then it so the outsides right you know, right seared better okay yeah because that, that was the challenge that i had for a while yeah cool all right. Yeah, I think we got. Uh, I think we got some clients coming up here, so we're gonna have to call, put an end to this. But uh, otherwise, we'll uh, we'll have you back on for some more Q and A's. Thanks, Ryan. That's a wrap on today's episode. You can find more about the Human Advancement Podcast and Ruthless Performance on ruthlessperformance.com. I specifically recommend that you head to our online education tab, where you can learn more about self improvement, the physiology of performance, practices for enhanced wellness, and more. You can view all podcast episodes directly on our website at podcast.ruthlessperformance.com. I also recommend that you follow us on both Instagram and Twitter with the handle at RuthlessPerform. If you have any questions for our monthly Q&A or wanted to learn more about training with Ruthless Performance, including information on our athlete development training, injury prevention and corrective exercise protocols, personal training, or for consults or assessments, you can get in touch with us online at RuthlessPerformance.com contact or via email at info at ruthlessperformance.com. The human advancement theme was written by Bernie Wallace-Savage.